everybody. Welcome to another episode of Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. And today we're going to be focused on U.S. Marine Corps tanks, specifically the M1 Abrams, which the Marine Corps has just recently divested of. And part of the reason for that was the Marine Corps is refocusing itself on being a more agile and responsive force. So the Marine Expeditionary Units have lost their tanks. Uh, and frankly, uh, the Marine Corps as a service has lost all of their tanks. Um, some people think that's the right idea, the right approach. Obviously, the Commandant of the Marine Corps does uh, because it came from his direction. But... There's others who feel that uh, tanks are necessary, and my guest today will be speaking about both aspects of U.S. Marine Corps tanks, which has a very strong history. My guest actually hosts a YouTube channel called 100 Years of Marine Corps Tankers, so I'm really looking forward to hearing his experiences and his perspectives on main battle tanks within the U.S. Marine Corps. This chat, in fact, happened right in the middle of the process that the Marine Corps was undertaking to divest its tanks. So I have to beg for my listeners' understanding with this particular episode. Um, when I was recording this, I thought everything was set up fine, but as it turned out, the audio on my side was relatively poor. So apologies in advance for that but there's a lot of great information here, so I didn't want to lose that, and I certainly didn't want to disrespect my guest's time that he graciously provided. So I hope you enjoy this episode, even with some of the limitations in the audio, but please bear with me for this episode, because I think you'll really like it. Thanks, everyone. So, without further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest, Major Ronald J.R. Velasic, to the show. Major Velasic, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Jody. The pleasure is mine, J.R. So, as I do with all of my guests, I'd like to ask, what made you join the military, and what made you pick the United States Marine Corps specifically? So, I was older when I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I was actually uh, 25 the first time I had an interaction with the uh, Gunnery Sergeant. Um, kind of a funny story. Uh, I was working in corporate America. I was uh, pretty successful doing everything, you know, a, a normal 23-year-old should do. And 9-11 uh, uh, happened. Um, and unfortunately, I, I lost a lot of dear friends uh, in Tower 2 um, and actually ended up spending uh, the remainder of obviously September to December going to funerals. And that feeling I had inside of me uh, was something that I just could not deal with. It was something that I wanted to do something, and I didn't know what that something was. But uh, at the time, uh, my father and I had a uh, family entertainment center in Lowellboro, uh, Pennsylvania, in the United yeah. States. And we had the football players on the outside and the cheerleaders on the inside. And we hosted parties and whatnot. So the gunnery sergeant would come to uh, the mini golf course and talk to and try to recruit, you know, obviously the high school students. So I had heard the spill before and I kind of knew what was going on. Um, but after 9-11, I walked into his office and said to him, hey, Gunny, you know, what's this Marine Corps thing all about? And he's like, ah, you know, well, who are we talking about? I'm like, nah, just I want to know kind of how it works. And he's like, well, you know, when I when I do my recruiting spill, I, I normally tailor it to the individual. I'm like, it's me. And he's like, aren't you like 45? I'm like, no, man, I'm 25. He's like, well, 
he's like, well, what do you weigh? I'm like, uh, 307 pounds. And he's like, okay. that's going to be a problem. He goes, uh, I can't do anything with you right now. He goes, we'll lose about a hundred pounds and then come back to me and we will, uh, we will see what to do. So over the next year I did, I focused, uh, on, on losing the weight and I ended up losing the weight and coming back to him. And he said, uh, all right, you look great. You know, uh, where are you going from here? And, and I, you know, he said, Let, let's go run a PFT. And I'm like, what's a, what's a PFT, you know, a physical fitness test. You know, I wasn't training the way I should have been. And I had no idea what boot camp was going to be all about. So put me on a training plan and got to the point where I was ready to go ship out. And the weekend before I ended up breaking my finger on of all things in their football. So fractured my finger. So I had to delay my, delay my ship date again. So I eventually ended up um, going to, going to the, uh, uh, going to the MEPS and then obviously going to boot camp. So I ended up going open contract because okay. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Sure. And I got to uh, MCT and at MCT is where they kind of tell you your, your MOSs, your, uh, your military occupational specialties. Um, MCT is Marine combat training. So I, I try to talk on the acronyms. Uh, so I'm sitting there and they yell out, Hey, Velastic tanks. I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. I guess what kind of tanks, fuel tanks, propane tanks, gas tanks, like no main battle tanks i'm like oh okay that's that's pretty cool yeah i knew nothing about the abrams i knew nothing about the mos i knew really nothing and uh i ended up spending you know the next couple weeks kind of learning up and talking to some folks and doing everything i could uh, to prepare myself but i really didn't know what i was getting myself into until i reached the battalion that's kind of how i got the tanks that's super interesting so how big is the marine corps tank community Relatively small. Uh, okay. We uh, we have three battalions. Uh, we we were larger at one point. Um, so so Marine Corps tanks have been around since 1923, and we've gone through ebbs and ebbs and flows, and, and there's been there's been increases and decreases and whatnot. So the Marine Corps Abrams uh, really kind of came online in 1983. So obviously, it's an older technology. However, it's still it's still a viable force in the battlefield uh, for various reasons. Uh, some being you know, just the way the vehicle was constructed, it was constructed, you know, magnificently, especially for an 80s technology. Yeah. And then, of course, we've, we've made upgrades along the way. So to get mm -hmm. back to your question, Marine Corps tanks, as we sit right now, we have 1st Tank Battalion, which is on the West Coast in 29 Palms. We have 2nd Tank Battalion, which is in Camp Lejeune, or Camp Lejeune, as we now say it. Mm -hmm. And then we have 4th Tanks, which is spread out geographically across the United States. And 4th Tanks represents our reserve unit. So when I originally made it to the fleet, I went to second tank battalion as an enlisted Marine. And I spent, uh, I spent five, some five years, uh, at, at second tanks, uh, went on the 26 Mu, uh, which was a uh, Marine expeditionary unit, okay. uh, sea based deployment. It was a good time. Uh, went up to the Syrian border. Uh, that was during the, uh, uh, what we call Phantom Fury, which is one of the most uh, infamous take battles, uh, that occurred in, in, in Fallujah. Really? During okay. that same time I was on the, I was on the boat that caused the stint to think that we were, that we were attacking from the shore, from the, from the beach. Ah, uh, okay. And in fact, in fact, we never landed. Right. Um, so I came back, deployed again with them to Fallujah, which was a 2005, 2006 deployment, mm -hmm. uh, and actually did have, um, see some combat action, uh, in, in the city of Fallujah, uh, mm -hmm. was able to, uh, uh re-secure the city. Uh, and then, um, I spent my, my enlisted time until 2008 at second tanks, at which point I commissioned, uh, kind of a funny story if you want to hear it about why I commissioned, but yeah, uh, absolutely. Get there in a second. So, yeah. um, why I commissioned never really intended on being an officer. 
that was not my intention. My intention sure. was really to just go do the Marine thing. Um, and I was, I, I, I was enjoying myself. I had, uh, I was hot shot gunner for the battalion. Things were going great. I was in the three shop, which is operations uh, section. I was okay. a sergeant. And quite frankly, it was, it was a good life. I was comfortable. I was, I was working, you know, not crazy hours. I was managing my own schedule. And as a sergeant, that's really rare because normally sergeants are kind of the middle management folks who have a lot of people to report to. But sure. in my particular case, I was working in operations. So really it was a small shop and, and it was, it was comfortable. So one day major Shulman, who was our battalion XO walks in and says, Hey, Sergeant Velasic, you have a degree. Yes, sir. <laughs> you've had it. You've had a degree. Yes, sir. Why didn't, why are you not doing anything with your degree? I am, sir. I'm a sergeant in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Well, you need to be an officer. And I'm not really too sure I want to do that. And he said, that's exactly why you need to be an officer. You'd be a good one. So what was your reasoning, JR, or your hesitancy to embrace that? Really, the, I didn't see myself as an officer. Because uh, I like to think of myself as, as kind of a knuckle dragger, kind of a kind of a you know, I like to be in the fight, and I didn't know that as an officer, even though you're not necessarily in the trenches all the time, the impact that the officers can make. And I did have some great officers around me. Let, let me let me not not steer that steer that any, any direction other than the fact that I was surrounded by some really really good officers. Sure. And maybe maybe that was part of it. Maybe part of it was I saw how good the officers were around me. And I didn't think I could live up to that expectation. It was, it was a bit of, um, I guess, a humble attitude almost, uh, humility, humility, thinking that, you know, I, I, they're so good, I can't do that job. That was right. part of the reason. Right. The other reason was, like I said, I was comfortable. You yeah. know, I was, I was on my way to Master Gunner School, which is the premier school for tankers. I was going to go learn the MOS uh, inside and out. Um, and, you know, I, I really like the idea of being a Master Gunner. Uh, master gunners, I mean, they're, you know, we don't have chief warrant officers and okay. tanks like we, like the other, the other military occupation release do. Okay. So, so like, for example, a gunner, a chief warrant officer uh, in the, in the infantry who attains the, uh, the bill, the rank of gunner, mm -hmm. um, has a bursting bomb. It's actually a different rank. Okay. He is the, or he is the subject matter expert for an organic tank, uh, organic infantry company regiment, all, you know, all the way up to regimental level. And that's, okay. and that, to me, that's, that's very impressive. We don't have that in tanks. What we have is we have master gunners. Okay. And they, they are the subject matter experts for everything tank, okay. everything from the fire control system to the weapon systems, to the armament, to, to repairing it. I mean, we do have mechanics and they don't, they don't cross the realm into mechanics, although they can, because mm -hmm. they can read, they can read circuitry. They can do all those things. Sure. So for me, the master gunner was kind of the pinnacle and I, that's where I was, I was headed. Okay. Uh, when, when this, when this, you know, XO walks in my office and said, Hey, you need to put together a package. Yeah. So, so just like a, uh, just like a good officer, you know, I, sir, you know, get in line. Well, the, um, you know, he looked at the two lieutenants and said, you know, Hey, I need you to uh, put together his package. So, uh, so they did. And Monday morning, my package was on major showman's desk and never expected in my wildest dreams to get accepted. You know, about, about six weeks later, lo and behold, there's an acceptance letter. Yeah. And I called my wife and said, Hey babe, um, I did a thing. I didn't really tell you about it, but, uh, we're going to be going to Virginia. And she's like, excuse me. I said, uh, I just got accepted to OCS. And she's like, I didn't know you applied. I'm like, yeah, my bad. So <laughs> we ended up going to OCS and uh, everything was, you know, everything was, was officer time from there. I think that's awesome, JR. And 
I think we have to unpack that a little bit because, as you know, part of this podcast uh, focuses on leadership and life lessons. Um, so perhaps you were comfortable at the time, but I think it's really cool that somebody saw potential within you and kind of pushed you along to uh, put in to be an officer. And I hope that that's proven to be positive for your career. I suspect it has. Thank you. It, it has. It really has. And, and once I understood the, the impact that officers have, you know, on, on the Marines in particular, it was an opportunity for me to give back. It was an opportunity to, to really take care of, of junior Marines the way that I, I was taken care of. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's, and that's how I've lived every day since I pinned on, you know, that second lieutenant bar. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, been a, it's been a focus of mine. I've never forgotten where I came from. I'm very proud that I'm prior enlisted and, and I don't hide that, you know, very often I'll tell that in conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I use that kind of as a, as a tool because I'm not going to ask any Marine to ever do anything that I have not already done. Right. And, it, and that, and you know, a lot of guys use that figuratively. I use it literally. Right. I mean, I, I have literally, you know, cleaned the bathrooms. I've literally swept the ramp. I've, I've done all those things. Sure. So, sure. so you know, I, I relate um, fairly well. You know, unfortunately, you know, as, as time goes on and I, and, I, and I rise in rank, you know, it, I do become a little bit separated and it, and it, it, it becomes a barrier because sure. when, I have a, when I have a junior Marine sit in my office and I try to, try to relate to him about me being a junior Marine, mm-hmm. one, they really don't think that I honestly mean necessarily what I'm saying until I break down the walls and I'm like, listen, man, this is, this is the life I live. This is where I came from. This is what I've done. Yeah. I've been in your shoes. I've been divorced. I've been, I've been, you know, hard on my luck. I've been, you know, there's a lot of things I've done that, you know, am I proud of them? Not necessarily, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I, I am proud of, of the fact that I overcame all those things. Right. And, that, and that's the lesson I try to give my junior Marines is, Hey, yeah, right now you're probably in trouble. You're probably going to pay the, you know, pay the price. You're probably going to end up potentially losing rank, potentially losing money. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. because it's not where you are this second. It's where you're going to be. And right. where you're going to be is based on everything you've learned up to this point, all your leadership principles, all your fundamentals. Those are not just bumper stickers. Those are truly things that are set in place to be tools. And you have the choice to change around your life and, 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 and do better for yourself. And, and a lot of times they do. Well, there's no doubt that as an officer, you have to lead and sometimes discipline. But I absolutely believe that if you've had previous experience that you can draw upon to counsel your subordinates, that is an invaluable way to lead. Um, There are some people that say respect is earned. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I would love to get your perspective on that. So you said that, that respect is, is earned. Mm. Um, I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. And, and, and this is the route I'm going to go with this. Sure. For the most part, Marines in particular, they're going to respect the rank, even, even internal to the enlisted, enlisted ranks. Okay. A, a, a private first class is absolutely going to respect a master gunnery sergeant simply because what he has on his collar. Trust is earned. Just because they, they respect the rank, it does not mean that they trust the person. Good point. Good and that, point. And that, that is something that, that I have taken literally and I've taken to heart because trust can be earned and trust can be lost. 
Right. And, and, and that for me is something that has been one of my, you know, one of my mantras is the fact that I want somebody to trust me. I want, mm-hmm. when I, when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Yeah. When I say that, that I would like to, to help a Marine out, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and even as, as an XO executive officer, which was my, my last billet, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, my time was, was very, very limited and, sure. and it was difficult to manage my time. Sure. And Marines would come in my office with some, you know, random stuff and never once that I look at it and say, that's unimportant. I'm not going to help him out or her out. I said, let me find the time to help you. Yeah. And in some instances, it took a little bit longer than probably the Marines wanted to. Mm-hmm. And in some instances, you know, I, I, I may have temporarily violated or, or, or kind of led them down a road of, of mistrust. Sure. But at the end of the day, if I said I was going to do it, I did it. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's something that, that for me is very important. Yep. I think that's spot on. Trust is earned. And I think honoring your word is extremely important. So if we get back to the tank, please describe for me the M1. Uh, what is it like to be inside? That was your office. Um, I'd love to get that perspective. Uh, so that way it kind of forms a basis for the rest of our chat. First of all, let me open up with saying that I love the M1A1. Cool. That the, she is a beast. She is an absolute beast. Yeah. And there is, I mean, there, there's so many awesome things about her that, that I just, I, I, I adore. Yeah. And I would, you know, I will, I will forever be a huge M1A1 fan. Here's why. Mm-hmm. Number one, when, when the, the tank itself is, you know, 70 some tons, She's big. She's, she's bold. She's clunky. You know, she reminds me a lot of myself. You know, I, I just, I see myself inside of an M1A1. Sure. Um, she, you know, and, and here, here's, it's comprised of four crew um, okay. driver driver sits in. So if you think of the M1A1 is, is kind of a boat. Okay. And you, you think about, you know, if you think of the, uh, the, the, the bow and the stern of the boat, well, the, the boat hull is the hull of the tank. And that's exactly what it's called. It's called a hull. Okay. She's, she's obviously tracked. You know, very, very wide track, you know, double, double, double stack track, mm-hmm. uh, supported, supported, uh, supported tension for the, for the track. So it supported track. So, you know, there's hydraulics and things in there. Um, so she rides like a Cadillac. The right. faster, the faster you make her go, the smoother she is. Nice. And um, so if you think of the hull of the boat, the driver is actually inside the hull. Okay. The crew sits in kind of a basket that drops down inside of the hull of the boat. So the driver and the crew inside the turret are separated. That's okay. how the turret spins independently. So right. the hull, the, the hull and the tank essentially can be moving one direction. And that turret can freely spin 360 degrees. Right. Right. So inside the turret, you have three crew, three man crew, three, three Marine crew. Uh, you have the gunner, the tank commander, and then the loader. And the tank commander is the senior man of that tank. Okay. Marine, Marine Corps tanks are comprised of a platoon of, of four tanks. Normally, there's there's uh, four, uh, three platoons uh, in, in a company uh, okay. that makes up 12 tanks. And then the 13th and the 14th tank is the executive officer's tank and the commanding officer's tank. So a tank company in the Marine Corps is typically comprised of 14 tanks. Okay. Three by four and then two. Now, why is she special? Well, she's special because, she's like I said, she's big and she's bad. Yeah. And, and move, shoot, and communicate is really the, the tanker's mantra. Mm-hmm. Move. She moves quick. She, she's agile. Um, she can turn literally on herself. 
-hmm. So, so she can do what's called a pivot steer and, okay. and displace no forward or backward movement and totally turn on the side of herself. Cool. Uh, and then as far as, um, you know, speed, 65 KPH is kind of what's on the books, you know, and that's, that's plus or minus. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, she, she can, she can go over slopes. She can go across grades. She can do everything. I mean, we have tanks in Afghanistan that were operating. And if you know that, if you know the terrain in Afghanistan, it's pretty gnarly and yeah. they, uh, they did great. Yeah. So move now, shoot 120 millimeter main gun, mm -hmm. uh, various am ammunition types that are used for, for various purposes, uh, mm -hmm. kinetic and, and chemical energy as well as uh, a buckshot round, which is our canister round, uh, oh, used, okay. for, used, used for close in. If you think of like a shotgun shell, it's very similar. Right. Um, and then uh, coaxially mounted 7.62 machine gun, 7.62 millimeter. And the important thing to know about the 7.62 is that normally, and if you, and if you look at most 7.62 crew served weapons that are used, not just in the, in the Marine Corps, but across the service and across the world, mm -hmm. normally that 7.62 weapon, even, even if it's mounted on a tripod, is considered an area fire weapon, which means right. that it's not as precise as a precision weapon. Right. What, what happens when you put that weapon system next to the 120 is that it uses the fire control system that, that, the, that the main gun uses and becomes a precision wire firing weapon. So it used the same ballistic solutions that the main gun gets, the, the 7.62 gets. So that, that actually increases that capability of that gun significantly. And believe it or not, the 7.62 coaxially mounted machine gun in, in an Abrams is one of the, is probably the primary weapon, because even even in instances where you know we might be main gun status hold for whatever reasons, normally we are we are clear with with that machine gun. So so we have learned very you know very quickly how to adapt and use that machine gun as its intended purpose, whether it be suppression, whether it be you know for, for destruction or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, suppression is really a, a, a valuable tool for the infantry. Right. And, and, right. and that's, that's the main purpose of the Marine Corps M1A1. And that's a significant difference between Marine Corps and Army M1A1s and the way that the, way that the U.S. Army employs them and the way that the Marine Corps employs them. So I was just going to ask about that. What are the main differences between the U.S. Marine Corps and the U.S. Army in terms of the M1 Abrams and the way they're employed? So the, the, the two major differences, uh, actually, it's probably just one, one major difference that kind of branches out. The one major difference is that the Marine Corps M1A1 and Marine Corps tank units were, and I say were, intended to support the infantry as a combat support element. So we support that, that, that infantry uh, Marine. And the Army tanks are actually a separate maneuver force where they, they – their mission set is different than is a Marine Corps tank where they are actually given a specific objective and they are not necessarily support rather they are a, a individual maneuver element. Okay. There's a difference with that because, right. you know, when, when they are required to drop down and, and perform a role in service support, it's not native to them. So they, the, 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 the training is a little bit different and their, their proficiency level you know, obviously they're good tankers. I love my army brothers and sisters. They're, they're awesome tankers, but they don't, they don't employ that vehicle with the same mindset that Marine Corps tanks do. So you had previously mentioned to me that the Marine Corps operates a different variant of the M1 in comparison to the U.S. Army, uh, the Marine Corps variant being the M1A1 and the army variant being the M1A2. Um, and there's a reason for that. 
That's correct. Yes. So, so the Marine Corps was asked mm -hmm. if they wanted to adopt the M1A2. So as Marines, we typically, we're used to being the little brother to the army. Sure. The arm, the army gets something. The Marine Corps is going to get it a couple years later. You know, we sure. get the hand-me-downs. We, we do more with less. It's not just a bumper sticker. It's actually the way that we live. Right. So we, ex we as tankers expected that when the army went to the A3s, we would, we would pick up their A2s. Okay. Right. It just seemed, seemed like a logical, logical progression. You would think. Yeah. That did not occur. The reason that didn't occur is primarily because the Marine Corps Abrams, Marines are amphibious. Right. We, we, we are, we are a amphibious fighting force right. for that reason. We spent a lot of time around, you know, littorals, sure. salt water, sand, sun, all those things. Yeah. The A2s have many more computer components because they have slew to queue. They have designated targets. There's a lot of different things that that A2 does that is adv more advanced than the A1 in order to support that it has motherboards and, com and computer chips and, and basically onboard computers. The A1, if you think about it, is analog. The A2 and above is digital. We chose to stay analog because, quite frankly, putting them inside of, 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 a, of a ship and being out of, you know, on, on a MU, a Marine Expeditionary Unit, for nine months at a time, that salt water would, would play havoc to those motherboards. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And clearly, there's a reason for everything. So now, JR, if you don't mind, talk me through what it takes to fire the 120 millimeter gun that the M1A1 has. When you fire from inside the tank, other than the, the, the very violent recoil from the breach, it's actually quiet. And you feel a little bit of a rock, but not yeah. much. Okay. Now, when the tank beside you fires, it's like your world just came unglued. Right. And that's why we that's why we wear hearing protection and that's why so because when when you're in the blast ele, ele, you know envelope of the main gun yeah. the concussion is pretty significant right right and, that, and that's why you know when we do support the infantry we have a certain line that they have to stay behind so that they're not concussed by the force of that gun and that right. 120 she like i said she she's 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 pretty bad yeah she's yeah, yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll reach out and touch somebody and with that fire control system and she's extremely accurate we can uh we can shoot in the move. Uh, we can shoot from stationary. We, we train that way. We mm -hmm. train stationary tank to stationary tank. We train mm -hmm. stationary tank to moving tank. And we train moving tank to moving tank. Okay. Um, and all three of those elements are different. And, uh, and we actually train to fight, you know, in any one of those instances. So you've previously mentioned Fallujah to me. And that leads me to ask for some of your recollections of operating the M1A1 in combat. Um, I would love to hear some of your thoughts about your experiences there. Sure. So in Fallujah, I hit seven IEDs. Uh, wow. my, my tank did. I was supposed to be the tank commander. Uh, instead, I, I ended up deploying as the gunner. Okay. So, so the three tank for what was um, first platoon, first platoon, we were red, um, had the, the three tank, which is, the, which is normally the junior tank of the four had a sergeant as a tank commander, very good friend of mine. And because he was deploying and his gunner got hurt a couple of weeks prior to them deploying, he asked me, I was supposed to go out on the next rotation. He asked me as a, as a friend, Hey, do you, would you mind being my gunner? You know, I, Marines will do anything for each other, especially when we ask, ask each other. Yeah. I said, sure, man, absolutely. I'll, I'll be your gunner. So, you know, I, I put myself in a, in a lesser billet 
was supposed to be a tank commander, now I'm a gunner. Uh, that's one step down billet wise. It didn't matter though. Cause I, I was, we, we, I was in my, I was in my really good friend's tank. I love the platoon. Uh, in fact, I did a, uh, an interview on, uh, on my YouTube channel with uh, Gunner Sergeant Jules, who was my, my uh, platoon sergeant. Okay. And it was just, it was an awesome experience. So I will tell, I don't, I don't typically like telling more stories. Um, sure. It's not really, not really my thing, but I'll, I, for the, for the sake of the channel, I'll certainly give you one. So we're sitting, we're sitting down and we're, we're looking at the, um, one of the bridges in Fallujah. And during that time, there was a uh, enemy sniper that uh, was, was gaining some notoriety. In fact, there, there's probably, I, I know there's a, there's a movie and some books written about the individual. Okay. He was working, he was operating the same time we were out there. So we knew there was a high sniper threat. And, you know, the tanks, because of our thermals and because of our, our optics on there, we, we can see very well. And we can sure. see very well in, in, in the dark. And the, the, the optics that we had at the time were far worse than what we have now. We have ones that are even better now. At the time, we could see thermals and we could see images and, and, you know, pretty much read a name tape in the complete darkness, you know, at a thousand, me a thousand, a thousand meters away. That's, wow. that's, that's how good it was at the time. And you can imagine they've gotten even better since. Okay. Wow. But we're sitting there, we're sitting there and we're, we're on a uh, security outpost. We're, uh, we're guarding the bridge and the, the if, infantry behind us were doing work. Not sure exactly what they were doing, but they were doing some work behind us. So you had uh, the four tank, which is my gun, which is gunner sergeant and our tank sitting at either corner of the bridge. And we're looking down, down the bridge, across, across, the, across the river and down into the city to see if anything was going to come up in our direction. And if we were, obviously we were, we were in handle business. With the sniper threat out there, we were scanning buildings and rooftops and everything. And to our, about our 11 o'clock, there was a building that had been blown out during probably Phantom Fury. It was, it was, it was definitely struck with air, air aviation. So it was, it was rubble, but it was still partially standing. It was a three-story building. You could see through it. And the backside of it was, was pretty much demolished. So it was, it was kind of a unique structure. Uh, it was a place that if I was a sniper, that's where I would go because it's, it's pretty easy to climb through the rubble, not be detected, and get into a firing position. Sure. So it was just something about that building that just, you know, but both me and, and, and Chris, my, my TC, my, my buddy, my friend, mm -hmm. you know, we both said, hey, man, you see that building? I'm like, yeah, he's like, I don't like it. I'm like, I don't like it either. And, you know, from those buildings, they can fire rocket propelled grenades, which will take out a tank. Right. Um, or it won't depending on where it hits us it might not take us out but it'll it'll definitely make for a bad day so we're sitting at the bridge and and the four tank is sitting beside us and we're we're in the three tank and we're looking down up to the bridge and we're looking down into the bridge and across the river to make sure that no vehicles were coming our direction right. so we're i'm looking at it and we're sitting there and the night's going on and our job is to scan and look and we're looking at everything you know close far and different because we're looking obviously for our infantry brothers and sisters but we're also looking for ourselves as I, as I scan the building, I look in what, what is a, a small window and I see what looks to be like a head and it's dark and obviously I can, you know, it's in thermal. So it's a black image on a green screen, but I clearly see something that looks like a head and all the, all the service members, even, even the, even the Iraqis that are over there typically wore Kevlar or some sort of helmet. And as you can imagine, a helmet gives a different signature than does a bald head. Sure. Right. So I'm, I'm looking at it to see if, if it was a Kevlar and clearly it was not. So I told my, my buddy, my Chris, my, my, my tank commander, I said, Hey man, I got a, I got a, you know, possible, you know, enemy in that window. And I, <laughs> he looked inside his sight and he's like, yeah, I got him too. He's like, keep an eye on him. So I'm watching him. He's not doing anything. You know, I'm just sitting there 
he's like, if you see a weapon, let me know. So he's scanning, he's doing his thing in his sector. I got the sector to the left, which is like 11 o'clock. That's where the building was. And I'm looking and I, clearly it's a guy. Now I, I can see him bouncing around and moving. No Kevlar. I can guarantee you he had no Kevlar. So I got my, I got my crosshairs on him. Yep. Next thing I know, he pulls over what looks to be a gun. And he sits beside him. Now I have silhouette of an individual and I have something, you know, stick looking sitting beside him. I'm like, hey, Chris, check it out, man. He's got a gun. He's like, yeah, he does. He's like, he shoulders that thing, you take him out. I'm like, Roger. So we're scanning and watching. I'm watching the whole time, you know, this and that. And next thing you know, the infantry comes up from our left and they start going across the, 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 other, the other portion of the river where, where you could cross. And they start crossing in, into this building. And I told Chris, I'm like, hey, man, check it out. We got the infantry going in there. He's like, good. And I could clearly see they were Marines, they were infantry, they were doing infantry tactics. Clearly they were infantry. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, this ought to be interesting. We'll, we'll see. And he's like, well, hey, man, keep an eye on lead trace. Know, know where that lead Marine is. He goes, if, if he's on the second deck and that dude starts shooting at him, he's like, he's like you're, you're clear to fire. Yeah. Roger. So I'm, I'm prepped. Gun's prepped. I'm prepped. You know, I see firing or I see that, that, that's, that individual from, from that third deck fire on those Marines. I'm, I'm, I'm going to fire. So I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm watching. Marines, they make entry into the first floor. They make entry into the second floor. And I'm like, here we go. This is it. This is showtime. I watch the Marines come up. He stops on the steps. And I'm like, this is it. And I'm, my fingers are on those triggers. Next thing, I, next thing I see is the individual lean down, pick up a Kevlar, and put a Kevlar on his head. What that was is that was, that was recon. That was a recon element. United States oh. Marine Corps reconnaissance element that didn't call out to anybody and didn't tell anybody that they were in that building. And that individual came very close to dying that day. Yeah. Had he shouldered that weapon or that, that firearm, that weapon. Yeah. I can't see uniforms in thermals. Right. Right. And he had his Kevlar off, which was given a signature of, of an individual that, that, that incident haunts me till today because I came very close to killing one of my, one of my own because he was not doing the right thing. Right. Right. But, but by the, you know, by the grace of God and everything else, uh, you know, that, that, that ended up, up being a good story. Wow. Um, thank you, JR, for sharing that story with me. Um, I appreciate that it haunts you, but I'm so thankful that it turned out as best as it could. Um, it's not lost on me that it's a volunteer military so the things that you and your colleagues have seen uh, must be difficult. And I can't help but be appreciative for the service that you and your colleagues have um, have done, the sacrifices that you all have made, and I guess the things that you still live with to this day. So um, this podcast is dedicated to people that I call heroes and I certainly include you in that. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that story with me. Um, thank you. Um, so at the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned that the Marine Corps is divesting itself of its main battle tanks. Uh, what is the background behind that? So uh, the decision was made by uh, the 38th Commandant of the Marine Corps, General H., uh, David H. Berger. And, uh, you know, obviously he, was, he did not make the decision solely. However, he was the one that, uh, during his Commandant's planning guidance, uh, put the word out. And, uh, you know, 
tanks tanks are are big i'm sorry about my dogs obviously no, it's, okay. from home. <laughs> it's all good uh, tanks tanks are big um you know we we do require a lot of fuel um, mm -hmm. you know obviously we're expensive because you know we are what we are right and uh you know typically speaking tanks are designed for um armor threats conventional you know conventional warfare and uh you know they, we were very successful in where we were used. Yeah. Marine Corps tanks has been in every single conflict since the Korean War. And, wow. and we, have, we have combat experience in every single conflict since the Korean War. <laughs> and uh, like I said, since 1923, you know, there's been, there's been, you know, there's been advocates for tanks and there's, there's been opponents for tanks. Sure. And it doesn't necessarily mean somebody's bad. I don't hold it against them. I understand that, that there's a time and place. And the Marine Corps has decided that this is not the time nor the place to continue on with Marine Corps armor. And uh, although that's a, a, a difficult thing to say, because I love the Abrams, as you can tell, mm -hmm. and the tank community is, is I mean, we're family. Yeah. We are, we are family. Yeah. And this year and the years coming up as we continue to divest is going to be difficult for, for every Marine tanker whether we're wearing the uniform right now or whether we got out 25 years ago or 30 years ago or even longer. Sure. It's, it's a, it's a very difficult decision. I'm sure it was a difficult decision for, for the commandant as well. Um, I'm sure it was um, that, you know, the divestment of an entire community is not taken lightly. I do not question his decision, nor, nor do I, nor am I in any way offended by it. You know, he is the commandant of the Marine Corps. He gets to make these decisions and we get to follow them. And that's exactly what we intend on doing. Yeah. Now, yeah. having said that, JR is, is, is a little torn by it. Um, sure. Like I said, you, you can tell I love the Abrams. You can tell I love the community. Yeah. Answer your question though as to why. So I mentioned time and place <laughs> and I mentioned, you know, kind of, kind of how we were typically used. Um, and, and that, ha that's changing. General Berger has decided to, uh, re-identify um, and, and provide a different identity to the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. And instead of us being land, land battle space owners as, as we have been in the past, uh, he is making a smaller, leaner, more lethal, uh, more focused on uh, specific type missions. And those types of missions uh, are typically going to be from the sea. Uh, we're going back to our amphibious nature. And uh, you know, tanks really don't do well on, on ship. Um, sure. So, you know, the, the type of mission sets that the Commandant is, is planning for us to execute in the future, didn't, tanks don't have a role. So for that reason, he's decided to divest. Right, right. Okay. Uh, so do you know if there is any type of replacement for the main battle tank um, in any fit form or function? That's a complicated question and one that really matters on um, a, a lot of different aspects of it. Uh, number one, ge geography, you know, where, where is, where are we going to be working? Um, number two, you know, what, what is the, who, who is the enemy? Uh, what does the enemy come to bear? Um, and then uh, quite frankly, what the mission is. And so, so to answer that question, I, I, it's difficult to, to do so. I will try. Um, you know, obviously with the, with the F-35 and, and the different aviation assets that are online, um, aviation provides a, uh, a very um, powerful uh, tool by which the commanders can use um, 
that will that should replace a lot of the a lot of the aspects that the tank uh, provided. Does it replace all? No, absolutely not. Sure. You know, but in reality, you know, the 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 types of conventional warfare that the tank was used in more than likely will not be uh, the same type of missions that we may be doing in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the short answer is, you know, we, we hopefully will be in positions where we don't necessarily need a tank. Now, in instances where that's not possible, our Army brothers and sisters are willing and able to support us uh, in joint operations uh, with their armor. Um, and, you know, there, there is some, some learning that's going to have to occur, and there's going to be some, some growing pains because, you know, as Marines, we speak Marine. So right. when an infantry Marine asks us to do something, that's a fellow Marine. Yep, I totally take your point in all of that, uh, Jr. And uh, certainly, there's going to be differences between the between the way the Marine Corps speaks with its own people and the way the Marine Corps might speak with the Army. But I suspect that's just a training function that will get resolved in time. Um, and I certainly take your point about the F-35 or aviation being able to address some of these issues. Uh, clearly, it's not the same as a main battle tank, but um, yeah, it, it, there's certainly that capacity or that capability. Um, senior leaders are talking about the resurgence of the great power competition, uh, China, Russia being uh, peer threats. Um, so yeah, it kind of makes me think that, that it's a shame that the Marine Corps is losing the tanks, but I guess to be a more nimble and responsive force, maybe that's the right approach, particularly since your army brothers and sisters are able to handle that with their, uh, main battle tanks. And that's, and that's quite frankly why the army is going to do it. And the army is very capable and, yeah. and, you know, having, having spent two years at Fort Benning. Um, where, where we have a Marine Corps detachment. Um, I, I, I have been with my Army brothers and sisters that, that instruct armor tactics, both at the, on the enlisted side and on the officer side. And they're very good. They're very good. So I don't want to, I don't want to at all, you know, show any shade toward, towards my Army brothers and sisters because oh, sure. yeah. they're, they're good. Now they are, they are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You know, like I had said, they, they are used to fighting as a, as a individual combat maneuver force rather than in support of anything. Um, so that, there is a nuance there. Mm -hmm. The other nuance is, is that in Fallujah, we broke down our platoons into the section level. And in some rare cases, broke down even further than that if we could maintain visual and audio uh, connectivity. So if yeah. we can see the other tank, we were comfortable putting one tank on a road and another tank on a road. The Army will never do that. The Army will yeah. not break down that low. Right. And, you know, that's, and that's fine. You know, that's, there's, there's, like I said, there's, there's gonna be some growing pains. There's gonna be some changes. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, just, just as we do, we will figure it out and we will, uh, we will remain as, as successful and, and lethal as we always have been. We hope you are enjoying this episode of the Go Bold podcast. Please take a moment to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our fabulous guests and topics. Now, back to our show. Okay, so I got to ask you this question. What did you like most about the M1? And what did you like least about it? The funny thing is, the answer to, to both of those questions is, is kind of the same. Okay. Because uh, what I loved most about the M1A1 is being inside this turret. Because inside this turret, 
is where you really you're you're in a box with three other individuals for it could be weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're talking sun up, sun down, you know, pull maintenance for a couple hours and go back out. And that's that's the life of a tanker. We live inside of this turret. Yeah. We, we live here, we eat here, we sleep here. You know, everything we need to do to sustain our lives, we do inside of this turret. Right. So you become extremely close with individuals. You know, tank, tank crews tank crews will be family forever. And that's the one thing I absolutely love about the Abrams. The one thing I, I don't like about the Abrams is inside this turret. Because there are times, if it's 90, if it's 90 degrees outside, it's about 130, 120 in here. And if it's cold outside, then it's cold inside this turret. So she doesn't do well with the, with the elements. Um, as marine tankers, we, we learn to drink a lot of water. I'm talking gallons of water um, sure. because we're going to sweat it right out. Right. I mean, the, the right. sub-turret is, is – that sub-turret, I have seen it full of human sweat. That's how much, that's how much you sweat inside the, uh, the turret. Yeah, so you better love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and how it, it, your your point there actually it makes me think about the air conditioning and also food. Like you know, it's a big tank. It's got a big engine, so you know, it's, I can't imagine that you know you could probably fill that whole thing and it wouldn't make a difference to being able to run it. But did uh, did you say air conditioner? What's that? There's, yeah. there's no air conditioner, my friend. You're you're kidding me. Oh no, there absolutely is no air conditioner. Oh, None. that surprises zero. Me. Zero. Oh oh, oh. Oh my God. I I would have imagined with all of the, with all of the years that, that coalition operations have been taking place in the Middle East and knowing what that climate is like, that they would have put an air conditioner to the tank. Oh, they put air conditioners in trucks and Humvees and JLTVs and all the other vehicles. Yeah. They have not put one inside the Abrams because quite frankly, survivability was one of the primary factors when they were designing this, this beast. Sure. Comfortability was not. <laughs> Comfortability didn't even make the, make the, the list. <laughs> oh man. So the so size of the track pad was more important than comfortability. Right, 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 right. So then, okay. So then tell me about what it's like to actually live there. Like you said, you lived there, you slept there, you know, you worked there. Um, and comfort didn't make the list. So, um, how did you come to love it? Because the amount of firepower that you bring to the fight and the ability to assist when, you know, I'll, I'll go back to combat for a minute. Um, there was an instance where we were, we were uh, operating as a, as a quick reaction force. Okay. And, and uh, believe it or not, tanks are very good on QRF missions because we're fast, we're nimble, and we can get there. Right. And, and we, will, we will push through gates. We will knock down cars. We will do whatever we got to do. We will get there. Sure. And she's the ultimate ATV. Yeah. She literally yeah. is the ultimate ATV. If you like, if you like ATVs or snow, snowmobiles or anything yeah. like that, yeah. the tank is the best, period. For sure. Um, so, and you actually drive it like, a, like an ATV. Throttle, okay. throttle back, left, right. So, yeah, it, it has the same feel as, as an ATV when you drive it. Okay. okay. Except it's 70 tons and it's huge. Right. Okay. So we're on, we're on a QRF mission. We get the call that um, the infantry's bogged down. 
an AAV had had thrown track or, or broke down or whatnot, they were in trouble. Mm-hmm. And and they were they were pinned down in an area where if they didn't get out of there, mortar was going to start firing and enemy mortar that is, and they they were going to be in trouble. So we rolled up and they had they had snipers up in up in the uh, the the, 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 the minuets uh, firing down on them. They had okay. a maneuver. They had enemy enemy uh, insurgents. You know more than two. There was probably three or four of them firing this way. So they were they were really kind of in a very complex situation that they. They couldn't get out of their vehicles to do any maintenance and they were in trouble. So we got the call and we rolled up and we put that tank right beside that down AAV and put her right there and built a wall so that those trackers could get out and they could do what they needed to do to get out of there. Okay. We started we started laying waste to to you know where the where the enemy was firing from. Sure. Just firing that direction. And just just we suppressed them, they they stopped firing. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, firing up in the minuet and we you know, firing up in that, and it was not a protected building at that time. Uh, yeah. ROEs, ROEs did permit it because they clearly were using it as a as a uh, military outpost and military firing point, um, sure. and had for a while, and uh, and we fired upon it, and mm-hmm. that's uh, um, so when we did that between, you know, suppression over here, destruction over here, you know, safety over here, you know, we rolled up and, and we did exactly our jobs, which was keep our keep our infantry and brothers and sisters safe, and get them out of there, and mortar did start firing. You know, we buttoned up, we were inside the tanks, and, and we continued to work, and, and we got them out of there. Wow. That's amazing. Um, you know, as you're sharing that, JR, it makes me think about just logistics of the tank, because like you said, you know, you can get anywhere you need to, um, but it's a big tank. It takes a lot of fuel, and so, and then, you know, as you're depleting your munitions, you need to be resupplied, too. You need to re- be resupplied with food. Um how does that evolution like i mean that's it's got to be so complex you know it's i've always i've always said that um you know and people have said it that that logistics you know an army moves on logistics or 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 any any uh, military force um but boy it is so true you know if you don't have you don't have support you you know you can go so far and that's it you know there's a saying and i don't know if i agree with it wholeheartedly or not but they say that uh amateurs practice practice tactics professionals practice logistics logistics right um, yeah. you know and there, and there there absolutely is some some truth to that yeah uh with marine corps tanks while we were still around obviously we are no longer yeah uh but uh the combat trains was a another element um that was in support direct support of tankers and our combat trains were from our own unit so there was a company trains that supported the tanks and normally the way that it worked is if you know and, and think thinking it can very conventional you know open terrain you know a a, a middle uh russia or some somewhere in the middle east that sort of thing um where you have different terrain features the tanks would would be the the, the frontline trace they'd be the leading force you know on a spear typically putting the putting the infantry and the battalions behind us so we we would be that that you know head, head of the spear uh, to go out there and actually make first contact and do what we do. What we do. That, that's, right. that's what we do for a living. Okay. Our company of trains would be one train feature behind us. So they're all in soft skin vehicles. They have fuel on them. They have all kinds of stuff on them. They're, they're one train feature behind us as, as, as we fought. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And, you know, it, it makes me also think in our, in our previous conversation, you had also mentioned to me about uh, something that I had no, no knowledge about or, or uh, no essay on and that was the communications capability of the tank and uh, i thought that was fascinating so uh 
the tank, an individual Marine Corps tank, and, and I think our Army, Army brothers are configured similar, um, was comprised of two power amplified radios. So you had two per tank, and they were, all radios were power amplified. So really, when you got out to the battlefield or got out to where you were operating, the, a tank unit always had the best communication on the battlefield. And we often relayed for folks because they didn't have power amplification. So if they were close to us, they could talk to us, but they couldn't talk back to, you know, the, the forward, the forward operating base or, or the outpost or, you know, the, 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 the command post, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we would provide that, we would provide that linkage um, and that relay back to, back to those folks. Um, you know, and, and we had two power amplified radios per tank, four tanks in a platoon, three platoons, you know, so you can do the math. Right, right. That is so cool. You know, as you talk about it, I, I can totally understand why you're passionate about the M1. And plus, you know, you spent a great part of your career in it. You know, yes. you, you, you form an allegiance. It's like a car. You know, it's like a favorite car. You, know, you, you love it for whatever reason you do. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I backdoored uh, tank officer. Be, right. being, a, being an enlisted tanker and then, and then being a tank officer is rather unusual. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So you have, you have, yeah, you have a very, very unique insight. That's for sure. Hey, everybody! I'd like to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic provides networked C5 ISR capabilities for defense, intelligence, security, and commercial missions. In this episode, you're hearing about the importance of communications. Cubic happens to be expert in expeditionary communications. They've produced products like their inflatable satellite antennas and other deployable cellular solutions, which provide industry-leading portability, fast setup times, and reduced operational costs. I encourage you to learn more about their technology at cubic.com. Now back to our show. So, tell me about 100 years of Marine Corps tankers. I know it's something near and dear to your heart. I'd uh, love to love for you to share with our listeners about. I certainly appreciate you allowing me the opportunity to do this. Um, yeah, you bet. And uh, first My off, pleasure. congratulations on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, absolutely, man. absolutely, it's wonderful, and I'm super proud to be here and uh, really enjoying it. But um, thank you, Jared. So, um, 100 years of Marine Corps tankers. It was it was something that uh, just kind of came about. I had uh, I'd started doing, uh, as, as I get close to retirement, uh, I wanted to kind of encapsulate some of the stories that I, that I have, uh, not for me, but for some of the junior Marines coming up or some of the guys that are on the fence about potentially, you know, becoming an officer. A lot of, a lot of enlisted Marines kind of struggle with that, as, you know, as did I. Uh, you know, I told you that story earlier. Um, if, I, if I can influence an enlisted Marine that has potential and, and has the right, the right mindset, don't do it for you, do it, do it for the Marines. Then I, then I wanted to do that. So I kind of started telling a story, my own story. And then with the divestment of tanks, when it came around, I quickly realized that the story of my community was far more important to tell than was my own. And that was kind of the birth of hundred years of Marine Corps tankers. And, you know, we, as a community, we are struggling with this and, and it's something, you know, you, you go to the closures of these units and watch the, watch the flags, watch the guidons be, be rolled up. It's like a funeral. It really yeah. is. It's, it's very much like a funeral. It's somber. It's, it's sad uh, because you're watching 
you know, a community go away. And, you know, because of that, uh, I wanted to come out and come up with something that would help out those Marines that are struggling. You know, a lot of guys, a lot of guys are not dealing well with this. Um, and they don't know necessarily what their future is going to hold, whether it's, uh, you know, lateral move into another, a new MLS, new military occupational specialty, inner service transfer over to the army to be an army tanker, or, you know, in, in the last case, uh, get out, you know, transition out of the military. You know, that, that's a real, that's a real option for a lot of these guys and, and, and gals. And quite frankly, they, you know, that's not something necessarily they were planning for. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, number one, see if, from a leadership perspective, having some of the people that, you know, I, I certainly respect and, and, have, and have grown up to, to, you know, hold as my mentors and people that I, I cherish, come on and kind of give their insight on, you know, hey, it's going to be okay. We'll, we'll make it through this. And then B, you know, here's some, here's some transitional notes that I took when I, when I was going through transition, getting out of the military. These are some of the lessons I've learned. So that's another kind of topping, talking point that I'd like to cover. And lastly, you're not going to be forgotten. No matter what, even if the community goes away, you are not going to be forgotten. And a way to do that, I think, and I believe, is in this medium, in this, in this digital medium. And that's how 100 Years of Marine Corps Tankers kind of came about. And it, it's, a, it's a YouTube channel, relatively new, uh, that I started. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a very similar you know, process as is this, where I conduct interviews with quite frankly, tankers. And I don't, and it can be, it can be, you know, a a crusty tanker from Korea or a PFC that's just got out of tank school with our last tank class. It doesn't matter. What matters is that every tanker has a story and those stories need to be told. And I, I just happen to be the guy doing it. Well, you're doing a fantastic job, JR. I've I've thoroughly, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, looking at your videos, and I, I recommend them to anyone who's interested in the Marine Corps or to, uh, or to Marine Corps tanks or, or just the Abrams writ large. Uh, you know, check out 100 Years of Marine Corps Tankers on YouTube, and it'll be a, it'll be a great place just to just to get some insight that you might never have known. And I've learned a lot from it. So I really Thank appreciate you, your efforts, man. Yeah, I really. Thank you, Jody. That means a lot. I really appreciate okay. that. It's genuine, absolutely. So I'd like to I'd like to end by asking you just a couple of um, quick personal questions, just to get a sense of who uh, Jr. Velasic is. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, what's your favorite drink? My favorite drink. Um, I would have to say, I would have to say scotch, only because I've recently gotten into it. And it's something that uh, I've come to really kind of enjoy uh, mm-hmm. because it's something that I can sip on, uh, and uh, and it, and it's just a uh, it's a nice you know relaxing, flavorful experience, and and it's something that you know my um, little little small note. So for the longest time, I bought my wife roses, and I thought she liked roses, yeah. and and roses die. I mean, obviously everybody knows all flowers die that are not that are not planted, but roses die quick. Sure. Right. So I would, I would spend all this money and I would get roses. And finally, I mean, we've been married for, for, you know, almost 16 years. And finally she says to me, you know, my favorite flower is a carnation. Right. And I'm like, wait a minute. Roses are like $50 a dozen. Carnations are like what they give away. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? That She's my favorite awesome. flower is a carnation after like it, it was this year. So it's like 15 years of marriage. I've been buying her, you know, roses. 
and, and the reason reason I'm telling this story is because carnations, when you buy them, yeah. they're 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 not real impressive. They're they're kind of small. Yeah. But if you've ever had a carnation, over time, it absolutely blooms and becomes yeah. something that is you know just just magnificent. Yeah. And it's taken me a long time to say to her, you know what, I can see why carnations are your favorite. Yeah. Well, that's that's me with scotch, because scotch is something that, uh, you know, obviously as it ages, it gets better, and then and then as as you as a as a as a, as a drinker, your palate changes and you you adjust to be able to taste the notes and the flavors, it it, it develops over time, and I Absolutely. think that's that's very similar. Absolutely, and it's so funny that you say that. I saw, uh, I, and I can't recall if it was on Netflix or if it was on like Hulu or one of those streaming services, but. Um, it was, I, I believe it was just titled Scotch, but it was a, um, a quasi-documentary about um, all these different distilleries in Scotland. And uh, it was awesome. I loved it. I like, I mean, you know, I, I, I have drank Scotch. I, uh, I, I'm not a connoisseur by any means, but after watching that, that documentary, it was, it, it, it gave you an, a greater appreciation for it and how passionate people are. Like I me, mean, I guess it stands for anything. Like people are passionate about beers, but uh, um, yeah, oh, that's super cool. You know what I like most about it though, JR, is that who would have thought that you're a romantic at heart? <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> I let that secret out, huh? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> well, that's awesome. You know, I think yeah. uh, uh, it's nice to hear. It's nice to hear. Like I'm still single, so you know I think it's it's very sweet. I hope your I'm sure your wife appreciates it. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, so, what kind of music do you like listening to? I'm all over the spectrum when it comes to music. I yeah, I, I like too. everything. Um, me too. You know, as a as a as a young kid that didn't know really know what he was doing, I was I was a DJ. Um, okay. You know, I I like I like things that bump. I like yeah. I like heavy bass. Yeah. I like high high treble. Um, I, I kind of an audio snob. Um, you know, I, I like, uh, I like quality music played on quality systems, mm -hmm. but I'm all over the, I'm over the spectrum. I got everything from, from Bob Dylan and Grateful Dead to, uh, Tupac to, uh, you know, Kendrick Lamar. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm all over the spectrum. I like country. I like rap. I will literally listen to anything. I have John Coltrane, uh, Miles, Miles, you know, Miles Davis. I have, I'm, I'm all over the spectrum. Right on. Um, you know, and really, honestly, I, I kind of use music as, as, as a tool. Mm -hmm. And depending on my, my activity mm -hmm. or my mood, uh, I, will, I will tailor the music to match that. So if I'm studying, if I'm doing schoolwork, uh, I'll listen to some jazz, some classic, you know, something not, not with a whole lot of lyrics. If I'm working out, uh, I'll listen to Five Finger Death Punch. I, I happen to met those guys and I know those guys. So that's probably my favorite rock band, um, oh. although I have many. Yeah. And, you know, if I want to just kind of kick it back and, and have some scotch, I might listen to some, some Grateful Dead or Bob Dylan or, or even, uh, you know, Hank William Jr., um, something along those lines. Nice, nice. You know, who, uh, most people would, wouldn't expect this, but, you know, here I am like a turban seat guy. And uh, in the 90s, I used to listen to like country. That was all <laughs> I listened to in the 90s. And you know, I kind of got out of it now, but like, I mean, I, I still like it. All depends on where it is, but I'm like you. Uh, my spectrum is wide open. And, uh, yeah. And that's the beauty of music. And similar to like different scotches or what have you, it's um, what's, you know, what's, uh, what strikes you in that mood? 
you know, right. and the, the variety is awesome. Um, right. uh, okay, so what's your favorite movie? My favorite movie? Well, that one you're going to laugh at. Um, okay. But uh, I would honestly say Top Gun. Nice. Because, okay. because, okay. because there's a reason behind that. Okay. When I was, when I was in second grade, uh, I actually stayed home. And uh, I, actually, I think it was a snow day. And my best friend in the world, we're still friends. I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been a long time. I've lost count of how long it's actually been we've been friends. We, uh, we called each other on our landlines because obviously cell phones weren't even a sure. thing of the thought of then. Right, right. We put, our, we put our VHS tapes in together and we coordinated the video to play together. Okay. And we, and we watched the movie from each other's homes because we couldn't go over each other's homes because it, it was a snow day. I remember that sure. it was a snow day and our parents, neither parents would drive because it, okay. it was in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And we, we, we synchronized and coordinated Top Gun to watch together. So although it's a very corny movie, yeah. Um, it has some, some, uh, uh, historical and I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, has, has some meaning, you know, because my friend and I, you know, I remember, I remember vividly from my parents' bedroom on their, on their VCR, cause it was one of the few we had watching Top Gun with, with my buddy. That's awesome. It's all about the memories. Right. Yeah. Uh, that is super cool. Okay. So uh, while we're on the topic of movies, I have to ask you about Fury and your thought about it <laughs> because I just saw it recently for the first time and right. uh, I, I did enjoy it. I did. Enjoy yes. It. Yeah. So, so not, not a bad movie, even from a tanker seat, not a bad movie. Um, there are things, there are elements of that movie that are very true. Okay. But fighting until the, uh, until, until the last person is alive. And, and even though the vehicle is shut down, you know, we, we train pretty much to fight in unpowered mode. Our, our Abrams, you know, when, or used to, God, when, yeah. when we did, when we did have Abrams, right, uh, right. you know, with the power completely off, you can, you can elevate, you can traverse, you can do everything you want with that main gun and you can fire that main gun with zero power on it. Really? So she's, she's, she's built to fight until yeah. the last person is alive. Okay. So that scene in the movie where that tank is, is immobilized and sitting there on the road and, yeah. and, and fighting. That's, 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 that's very true. And, and mm -hmm. that's a real thing. And that, and that did happen. I mean, when you look at the Medal of Honor recipients uh, from tanks, um, there are the, that, that particular battle and, and the way that they wrote that for the movie is very similar to an actual event. So from a historical standpoint, not bad, but I will tell you that had I been on the set, those lasers that they shot from, from those tanks would never have made it to final cut. Because you don't take Star Wars lasers and put them on a damn tank from World War II. You just don't do it. You don't do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think you feel strongly about that, JR. <laughs> yes. You just don't do it. That's hilarious. Uh, okay, cool. And I knew, I knew you felt that way, so I had to ask. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, Okay, uh, where's your favorite destination, favorite place you've been to for whatever reason, whether work, personal, whatever? Uh, I, am I allowed to have more than one? Yeah, sure. All right, so I would say um, Dubai is probably one of my favorite places to go. Um, I cool. was there I was there for an extended period of time. Um, I got to play golf at the Montgomery, uh, which was uh, an incredible experience. Okay. Um, and having a camel as my, as my cart right. and, and, uh, and playing in the middle of the desert on beautiful, luscious greens that are probably better than any of the greens here in the United States. 
uh, was just a phenomenal experience. I'm sure. Um, so Dubai for me is, is, is very cool. I would like to at some point go back there. Um, okay. I had a good experience there. Cool. The other one is Latvia. Uh, Latvia, really? Latvia for me, I, I, I also am a beer drinker, even though I, I gave yeah. you my, my, my favorite drink is scotch. Yeah. I really do enjoy, enjoy beers. I enjoy very dark beers, very beers that have a lot of, a lot of personalities. I like to call it. Me too. And, and, and the Latvians are, are very known for that. And uh, I really enjoyed my time over there. I told my wife, I said, Hey, we need, we need to plan a trip to Latvia. I think we really do. Cool. Um, so that's probably, uh, probably my, my two Oconus places. Um, and you know, my, my other one is probably my house. And, and, and it's funny I say that because we've moved seven times. So right. it doesn't matter where we are or where we're going. It's, mm-hmm. it's being inside my own house. And, and, you know, number one, I love my family. That's, that's, that's probably the primary reason, but two, you know, I, I like my toys too. And I got, I got a little bit of toys. So, you know, nice. between the, the music and the movies and everything else, I, uh, I, you know, I, I like to enjoy comfort of my own home, I should say. Sweet. Sweet. I like that. Um, and I've been, I've, I've been to Latvia once before flew into Riga, but I didn't spend much time there, but mm-hmm. it looks like a, it looks like a nice country. Riga's gorgeous. Riga's yeah. Incredible. yeah. Right on. Um, so Apple or Android? Man, how long you know me, Jody? Come on, man. Do I, <laughs> I look like answer. I'm an Android guy? Exactly. Do I look like I'm an Do I look exactly. like I'm an Android guy? Like, come on, for real? You like you just insulted me. That, them, <laughs> those are fighting words. I, I love it. You know, because so many people have answered Apple. And it's like I'm like, am I the only guy that that uses Android? Really? It's true. It's true. It's like, I thought I converted you by now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a stubborn guy, so it'll <laughs> take a bit of time. It's one of those things, but you have to move your whole ecosystem to it, you know? Right. That's that's the thing. So, yeah, I'm just a holdout. Make the uh, jump, man. Make the jump. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, okay. Uh, what's your favorite pastime or hobby? Gosh, I haven't had a pastime for the last year plus so because I've been doing school. Um, sure. But uh, – Golf is probably one of them. Um, hiking and camping is probably another. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably leave it there. Yeah. Golf, hiking, and camping. Nice, nice. Uh, two last questions. What's your sure. biggest, biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve would probably be lack of mutual respect. I, I tend to respect everyone and and even when they don't deserve it i I still have a tendency to respect them as as a a person and it doesn't matter who you are where you are um and and you know i I think i was i think i was taught this by my father Mm -hmm. um my father's a criminal defense attorney and as you can imagine that's a uh that's a rather um it's a rather interesting job especially as a child and my father never kept it from me. In fact, he, he really, you know, exposed me to it at a very early age. And I can remember on our way to a hunting camp, my dad said, I have to go stop and, and, and talk to this individual. So he, uh, we stop and I look at the individual and I'm, I'm young. I'm probably, gosh, I'm probably maybe five, maybe six. Okay. And this guy is, is just, in my opinion, disgusting looking just disgusting. Just, just, you know, you can tell down on his luck, 
you know, holes in his jeans, just covered in whatever. And he smelled and he just, you know, he just did not, it, it was the first time I'd really seen somebody that, that was impoverished and down their luck and really making some poor choices in their lives. Sure. And it bothered me because I, you know, I, I had the utmost respect. I still have the utmost respect for my father. Mm-hmm. And to look at him talking to this individual, I got very confused. I'm like, is that my dad's client? Like, even at an early age, I understood what a client was. Yeah. So I didn't say anything. He gets in the car and we're driving up to, to our hunting camp and uh, I'm quiet. And I'm not normally quiet. I'm, I'm, I've always been loud. I've always been a talker guy. You know, I've always, that's just who I am since, since I came out of the womb. Uh-huh. My dad said, you're, you're quiet. Why, why are you quiet? And I yeah. said, uh, well, I don't understand dad. He said, well, what don't you understand? I'm like, that guy you were talking to was that your client he's like yeah i'm like dad he's a dirtbag and he's like you're you, yeah probably probably some people would probably call him a dirtbag why do you call him a dirtbag well daddy just he smelled and he was you know just looked disgusting and he's like well do you like those shoes you're wearing and i said yes sir and he said well that dirtbag paid for those shoes and you know it was it was a very kind of you know pausing moment and then he went on to explain to me that you know as as a criminal defense attorney he's an officer of the court everybody has has the right to, to to a fair trial and you know we had a long conversation about what he does and who he represents and the fact that quite frankly every human being should be respected yeah and even though people make poor choices in their lives doesn't always mean that they're horrible people no you can make a bad choice in your life and recover from it Right. And, you know, hopefully that gentleman may have done that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know till yeah. today. Sure. But my father expressed to me that just because you make a bad choice doesn't always. Now, sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it does. Sometimes people are just inherently evil and God rest their soul and there's nothing you can do for them. Yeah. But there are times where people have made laps of judgments and poor judgments that yeah. they can recover from. Yeah. And, and for, for that reason, I tend to respect everybody. You know, that's a great lesson. And it's, it's, it's a great approach. I think that's awesome, Joe. You know, because at the end of the day, we're all human. You're right. You know, there might be the, the odd one that's, that, that you can't just re- rehabilitate. But, um, but for the most part, you're right. You know, uh, we're all human. We all deserve a chance and all deserve respect. So, and uh, you've always given that to me. And I greatly, greatly appreciate that. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a testament to what your dad taught you. You know, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so my last question for you is if you had a, uh, a superpower, what would it be? If you could pick one, yeah. Go back in time. I would love to go back in time. Um, because and do, you, do you mean in, in your lifetime or any time, any time in history? Any time in history. Okay. Yeah. I, I honestly believe that uh, um, I believe there's a lot of good that could come back and, and having that, that, that vision behind you um you know there's there's pinnacle move pinnacle moments in 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 everybody's life individually and there's pinnacle moments in life as a society and 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 a culture and 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 a world and you know um like i i would like i would like to go to go back to a lot of different points in history and say hey i come from the future and you're an idiot stop doing what you're doing yeah yeah um well, it's it's so funny that you say that. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Final Countdown, or if you've ever heard of it. I've not. So The Final Countdown, uh, it was Kirk Douglas that was in it. Um, 
But he basically, the premise is that a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier with all its air wing goes through this kind of time warp and ends I up... I have seen that. I didn't know that was the name of it. Yes. That's it, yeah. Yes. And so the, right, the, right the, the, the Bermuda Triangle. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in essence, yeah. 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 But, it, but where it ends up is right before Pearl Harbor happened. Yes. And so then they've got these F-14s that are flying against zeros and whatever. Right. And, and, that, and that debate ensues. What mm. do we do? You know, do you okay. stop them? Because you know what's going to happen. And um, yeah, really interesting. Oh, that's a neat one. That, you're the first person that said that. So <laughs> that's cool. Well, JR, I really, really appreciate the time, my friend. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for sharing with our listeners about, a little bit about Marine Corps tankers and, uh, and what it's like to, to operate the M1A1 and, uh, and to also share the, the YouTube channel that you've got, 100 years of Marine Corps tankers. I thank you for allowing me the opportunity to come on here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, as you well know, I, I absolutely enjoy talking to you, Jody, whether we're on mic or not. And uh, I wish you the absolute best with this podcast. I know you're going to do great things. Um, and to, uh, to all my Canadian, uh, Canadian brothers and sisters, I'll see you in the, uh, on the ice rink this year. Go Penguins. So, uh, no, nah, I'm just joking. Love you all. And, uh, you guys make some great maple syrup. So, all right. Take care, buddy. Thanks, buddy. You take care of yourself, JR. All right, thanks. All right, all right bye-bye. Bye now. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.